Just papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in news media these days, and we're pleased to bring you some conversation. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, here with Ian Pickus, the news director of Northeast Public Radio, and Rosemary Armeo, longtime investigative journalist and professor and all those kinds of things. How y'all doing? <laughs> y'all? Oh, he's become Southern. Oh, yeah, well, I've got a streak going here. It's nice to be back. <laughs> <laughs> A streak, you know. I mean, you're sort of the proprietor of the studio at this point, so I think... I know what all the buttons do, and that gives you a lot of power. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We could always be cut off any Could you now. fly the Starship Enterprise? The, I'm the, more of a Millennium Falcon guy. Uh, <laughs> which has served me well here. The same. Something yeah. doesn't work, you bash it a couple times, and you let the Wookiee win. There we go. Well, since you're up to date on all these newfangled things like radio, uh, <laughs> being the youngest man in the room, let's talk about uh, the uh, uh, text-based conversation app. Twitter, for example, is a popular text-based conversation app, if we're having trouble understanding the terms. But Twitter is in difficult straits these days for a number of reasons, not least being irregular management by Elon Musk. And now there's talk about Meta actually coming in, the parent of Google. Is Meta and their threads, is there a place for a competitor like that? It seems to be. I think there is a place. It remains to be seen if it will be the Facebook-backed threads that fills in this gap. But I was thinking back as I signed up for my threads account to the way I approached the onset of Twitter. And I was very old-fashioned, and I resisted for years and years and years and years. And we had an associate news director at WAMC named Patrick Donges who set up uh, in the early days of Twitter, a second screen just to follow Twitter the way you might follow the old AP wire. And I resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted until finally I signed up. And that was maybe about five or six years after Twitter began. And that is a huge regret of mine because I had given this huge uh, time up when I could have been building followers and ah. kind of making it work for me. So I'm not making that mistake again. Twitter yeah. is on the decline. I am an early adopter of threads. Uh, so far, it's a little, you know, it, it looks like Twitter. It's not quite Twitter. It's not the Twitter heyday. But it may be the refuge that people are looking for with other apps so far like Mastodon and Discord in the wake of the Elon Musk purchase of Twitter. And it's just been so chaotic. Every change has seemed to backfire so far. So at Ian Pickus on Threads, maybe I'll see you there. You know, the thing about uh, about Twitter is, for journalists anyway, the reason what you're saying, and just to explain to readers that why it is valuable is that so much news breaks on Twitter. There were, uh, while it is minuscule by comparison to actually YouTube even, uh, in terms of the number of users, hundreds of millions as opposed to billions of users, Twitter nevertheless had so many, has so many journalists on it, or has had, that it has been an invaluable way to just get information. 
right? At especially, its best. oh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. especially like on local news, like fires in the West, you could get better, faster information on Twitter for a number of years than you could from from regular media that had to send people out. This was these were people in the community who were right there watching mudslides and fires run through their communities. But that's really gone downhill since Elon Musk took over, of course. And the difference now is that there isn't just one Twitter or even two or three. There's, as you listed, a number of them, and they're all competing, and it's hard to know which one will become dominant at this point. You mean Twitter so, competitors. Now, there's Twitter just one Twitter. The right. problem with and, and Twitter now, thanks to Elon Musk, is untrustworthy. You know, I, I'm a former blue check guy. I mean, I, I was verified when I was the editor of the Times Union, and I thought, okay, so people... It almost made me seem to feel that I had a sense of responsibility Mm -hmm. to to not do anything casual or uh, stupid or untrue, certainly. And now, of course, a blue check only means that you paid Elon Musk some money. Uh, You can't trust anything you see there. No. The latest rule from Musk is even more crazy that depending on whether you pay for your blue check or not depends on how many tweets you can read in a day. I mean, isn't that the whole purpose of a text-based communication system that you talk as much as you want and now you can't even do that unless you pay and then he was kind of wishy-washy about that. He kept raising the numbers. He does it's like he doesn't know what he's doing. And most of the moves he's made have not been popular. That's oh, No, I know. Although he keeps saying, I've polled people and this is what users <laughs> tell me. But there's still a reluctance of a whole bunch of people maybe journalists to get off of Twitter. They just keep hanging on to it. They still have their accounts. They've not left on mass because it's so unclear which of the competitors will be dominant. And I don't know that there will be one unless at some point Zuckerberg is successful in his uh, long held dream to purchase Twitter and make Twitter part of Meta. I don't know. I think we are just going to sort of disseminate all the different accounts on a number of different platforms and we won't have that public square that Twitter was in its heyday anymore. And even though the the knock has been that it's just reporters talking to each other, that was valuable. Now you have a place where news outlets like this one have decided they are not even going to take part on Twitter anymore. So you spend a decade, you know, trying to get your audience or people who might become your audience to look to your account for information. And now that's ending, and it's ending in flames for a lot of people. Isn't it perhaps good if there isn't a single repository of this kind of information? The promise of the Internet when it first emerged was let a thousand flowers bloom, that it would be the place where so many voices could be heard. As you have these huge behemoths basically dominating the conversation, maybe it's better if there are multiple centers of conversation as opposed to one that is aggregating everything. Is that possible? I don't know how you kind of get around the fact, though, that people want to have a place they can turn for information. Twitter has been a place where, you know, now the White House releases statements via Twitter. So the police and fire departments, everybody does. But it's turned sour under Elamas. It's become another parlay or truth social, which is partisan and one-sided and turns off some of the users. What we really long for is the public discourse where it's a safe space for everyone to talk and that doesn't exist anymore. Maybe maybe that's impossible in today's political environment. Even when it was going well, people hated Twitter and they loved to talk about how much they hated right. Twitter while being on Twitter 12 hours a day. Right. In its ideal form, 
you know, the cream rises and the folks who have something interesting or compelling to share are the ones who build a follower base. And you could sort of, even as you tailored the algorithm, you know, you would get the, the top information first. And every single move that Musk has made to mess with that, I think, has just eroded the platform. And for people like us who are, you know, WAMC's main account, it's not a behemoth of the internet by any stretch, but that's, you know, 10,000 people that we, we maybe were not reaching in our, our traditional way. And there is not a, a ready replacement for that yet. I stopped using Twitter uh, about three months, four months ago. And then I find myself <laughs> wishing to get it back out there. You know, I, I, I post weekly uh, on the Upstate American, a Substack column that I write. And I put it out there on Twitter. I post it on Facebook. I put it on LinkedIn. And um, I should do uh, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, yeah, yeah, I should do. I should do TikTok. I don't know. That seems to be uh, current among young people. Mm. But Musk has dumped Substack. It has been a vehicle for many writers, such as yourself, mm -hmm. who do newsletters, important newsletters that are very interesting to read. They've gone out through Twitter, and he's now put restrictions on them that has messed them up. What is he doing? I continue to be fascinated. He spent a fortune buying Twitter and seems to be systematically running it into the ground on purpose. That's what he wants to do? Or is he really just an idiot and, and completely incompetent as a manager? Well, we can do a little psychoanalysis here. I mean, there are people who say that Donald Trump only likes to break things because things only work for him when they're broken. And and Twitter, <laughs> his name is not Twitter, his name is Musk. And Musk may have a similar affliction. You know, maybe it is just that this is the way he operates. I don't know. I think it is something psychological, not business valid, <laughs> not sensible business. Wow. Who knows? There is also the argument that Twitter is far more widely used among journalists than the population at large. And it's made us really lousy. The, whole lot of Trump coverage consisted of reading his uh, Twitter, twi his tweets, and then getting responses to it, which is lazy and very easy journalism. So I'm not sorry to see that go. Um, also, I'm not a fan of the mode of journalists making smart aleck comments on Twitter yeah. as a mode of getting yeah. their brand out there. I, I think it's uh -oh. great to... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I don't think I followed you. I don't know. I must have. Because I haven't seen it. Are, are, are they smart? <laughs> that was a shot. <laughs> anyway, folks, if you are on Twitter, hmm, uh, that's tick a good tock, thing. TikTok, TikTok. TikTok, here we go. So give us your thoughts. Media at WAMC.org, by the way, is our email if you want to offer some thoughts about this program. We're always glad to hear from you and, and happy to kind of get this into the conversation. You know, it seems as though there are different, uh, of course, there are big stories that we follow from one month to the next, one week to the next. The Supreme Court has issued a, a lot of rulings recently that have just been so huge that they have dominated one news cycle after another. And it raises a question of how we cover these issues. Uh, the Supreme Court has always operated behind a certain veil. We don't have any video coverage at the Supreme Court, even though most Americans get their news from TV. Um, we uh, have rarely actually heard arguments. Now there is an audio feed, but you don't really uh, get it. It is, it is very hard for people to understand really what the Supreme Court is doing, but we're finding that the court is increasingly drawing scrutiny, and it really raises the question of maybe we ought to be covering the Supreme Court differently. 
have we been as journalists too respectful of this bunch of people who wear black robes and have lifetime appointments? Is that the problem? Yes. <laughs> In a word. <laughs> yes, we have been. We have accepted the rules like no cameras and until very recently, not even audio access to what was going on in these deliberations in which nine people decide the fate of the entire country. And I know that since the Brethren, when did that come out? In the 70s, mm -hmm. when Woodward looked at the Supreme Court and how they came to decisions, there has been at least one strain of objective clear-cut investigative reporting, and we're seeing it really blossom right now with the ProPublica series on the financing and the conflict of interest. And there's lots more to do on that. What happened to Brett Kavanaugh's debt relief? That that was a huge issue when he was being uh, vetted for the court, and it's never been followed up. Why is that? What other high public official would have $200,000 in debt forgiven suspiciously close to the time he was being considered for this post, and you'd never hear about it again? So I'm, I'm hoping that That'll be the next ProPublica target. There's also much more emphasis on the judges, the personality and the background of the judges, including the new black woman judge who is amazing. She has come out of the gate stronger, they say, than any other Supreme Court justice that anyone can remember. She's so brilliant and strong, strongly written. She attacked Clarence Thomas in her last opinion about the um, affirmative action. So I think that you're beginning we are going to cover the Supreme Court different. We need to, yes, and you're beginning to see that happening. Here's a remarkable bit of information, by the way, in that regard. Jane Mayer is writing a book in the Supreme Court. Jane Mayer, the great investigative journalist for The New Yorker who has uncovered black money's influence, uh, she is turning her attention now to the Supreme Court, I've just read. That will uh, be awesome. That is going to be quite something. Yeah, and I think polls have shown that Americans do not view the Supreme Court the way they once did. The approval is at an all-time low, suspicion is at an all-time high. They view the court as a political body, which is not how the court wants to be seen, although it is often how it acts. Yeah, and the recent story about how one of the cases before the court, the one about the designer, not the web designer, not having to take gay couples, it's faked. The case itself turns out to be faked. Journalists found that out. They're the ones who called the plaintiffs, the supposed plaintiffs in the case, and found out that it was all phony. So you're gonna see a whole thread of stories about how the justices are picking cases based on what they want to rule on rather than actual cases. That should never have come to the court. And there's there's been a number of other cases, the one on the loan forgiveness. Why did that come before the court? Why did they take that course? We have to remember the Supreme Court decides what they're going to rule on, and they are picking and choosing. They want to knock down voter rights. They want to knock down affirmative action and other rights for gays and minorities. And the press really better be covering this because it's so important. You know, in, in journalism, we often say that transparency is essential to trust in democracy, that the reason that we expose wrongdoing, that we go after the stories that we do relentlessly, is because we believe that that kind of light is a disinfectant. Actually, those are words from a Supreme Court justice's ruling. That's where we got that image, that metaphor. And yet we have not been able or we have been unwilling to apply that kind of bright light to the Supreme Court. We as journalists have held it out as something different, uh, believing, I think, fearing that if the light is shined too brightly there, we public confidence would be destroyed. 
destroyed in the court. Perhaps it would be viewed as just like the other branches of government, which people don't trust. And now we find that, as you say, polls show that only about a quarter of Americans have great confidence in the Supreme Court far down a third of the level of trust that was just 20 years ago in the court. Is that because we are beginning as journalists to shine a light brighter, or is that just because the court has been more politicized? Or is it because the members, the justices, are more odious than they have been in the past and are not afraid to get out and write horrible dissents that mock people, including their own predecessors, and give speeches, which you did not hear Supreme Court justices do, you know, in the beginning years of my career? You never saw that. Now it's fairly commonplace. And I think you also have to point to Donald Trump here. He uh, alone among presidential candidates said, here's a vetted list uh, from the Heritage Foundation of potential jurists Uh, I will name. Federalist Society. Thank you. Federalist Society that I will name if elected. That had never been done before. And you could usually tell, you know, the kind of leaning that a president might pick from. But to actually have, have names and then to follow through on it and to get three justices named within a four-year period, yeah, it's been politicized, no question about it. And I don't know that journalists are to blame for that. Not since FDR have you seen a president so directly try to rig the Supreme Court. And Donald Trump did that openly with great help from Mitch McConnell, deciding on how to pick them and also saying, we're going to pick justices who will go after Roe v. Wade. Well, that's not supposed to be the way it works. You wouldn't think, unless you're wanting to set up the court, unless you want to see the court viewed as just a tiny legislature, you know, a nine-member legislature, which is what it in is, in effect. The hypocrisy of conservatives saying we hate these liberal justices and their liberal activism, and then you put on conservatives who are far more assertive in their activism than any liberal was. In the past year, we've knocked down two 50-year-old precedences. That's never happened before in the court. Never. I think you see uh, a lot of hunger on the part of the public just because the way the court operates is incongruous with what we're accustomed to in in modern political life. I mean, it's behind closed doors for the most part. Um, You find out a leaked opinion in the Roe v. Wade uh, case and you have an ethics code that's not being enforced. It makes you suspicious. Mm hmm. All right. Well, we're going to be uh, continuing to track this. I think you will see more coverage of the Supreme Court and all courts in a more aggressive way as journalists get a sense. Well, to the extent that there are journalists able to do that, yeah, <laughs> if there are enough journalists on hand to do the uh, the work. That's a good point, Rex. It isn't just the Supreme Court. Donald Trump and McConnell remade the entire federal judiciary. There are hundreds of Trump-appointed judges. When did we ever see before statements like a Trump-appointed judge said the following or ruled the following? But you are because they're acting in this really activist single way. One judge in Texas decides that the drug for abortions is not legal, even though it was approved by the appropriate federal agencies 20 years ago. When did that ever happen for you? are right. It's far more than just the Supreme Court. It is because the Senate, as the entity confirming judges and the president as the entity appointing them, allowed to come to the federal bench for lifetime appointments people who were not qualified, people who actually the traditional vetting agencies had said are unqualified for the bench. Notwithstanding that, they got confirmed. They got appointed and confirmed by the Senate. So you reap what you sow, and the Senate 
and the White House under Donald Trump have corrupted this branch of government. I'd like to see a little more attention paid to that Senate whole confirmation issue, too, because you are now seeing uh, people supporting Trump, senators supporting Trump and hating Biden, withholding approval for ambassadors, for military appointments. It's affecting way more than just our courts. That's bad enough. Mm. And we're not shining a light on that. Now, here's something interesting. In this conversation among journalists, uh, we are reflecting a point of view. This is a commentary program. It's not straight news coverage, but even in straight news coverage, we've had a lot of conversations in this program about so-called both-sidism, the old trend in journalism that we have been attacking, let's say, for the last decade or so, of always bending over backwards to purport to be fair in the presentation, even at risk of giving listeners, viewers, readers something that is less than true. And now both sidism is thankfully being scrubbed of journalistic practice somewhat. That is, uh, we are asserting, as the Code of Ethics of the Site of Professional Journalists says, that the goal of journalism is to give our readers, listeners, viewers, truth, not just he said, she said. It's to help people understand the world beyond their own experience. Yet there still are journalists who have a different point of view here. At a, an NBC affiliate in Michigan, a couple of news directors have been fired following the circulation of an internal memo calling for scaled-back coverage of Pride Month Jeez. events, directing the station's journalists to, quote, get both sides on LGBTQ issues. What are both, both sides. sides on LGBTQ? Is it... <laughs> That gay people are depraved and yeah. unnatural. Did you forget that, Rex? There You're we go. such a liberal. I, <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I guess we should be glad that they were fired, right? I am. Yeah. And there was a part of that story that really stuck out, which is the justification being we have uh, listeners on the right side of the spectrum, uh, viewers, who are upset by our coverage of pride. So let's throw them a crumb here. Isn't that the Fox News uh, philosophy business model? You give the the viewers what they want mm -hmm. so they keep tuning in? Mm -hmm. Give them what they want, even if it is at risk of being— Truth. Yeah. yeah even... Indecency. Uh -huh. Morality. It's, it's a horrible position. I, I told you it reminded me of Donald Trump talking about the— the completely anti-black, anti-Semitic, you name it, anti-everything march in Charlottesville. And he said, oh, they're good people on both sides. That's what both sides is. We actually dealt with this in a recent story at WAMC on a, on a similar issue. Mm -hmm. A right-wing hate group, an extremist group, has been putting banners up on the Mass Turnpike in Western Massachusetts. And people saw them and reached out to us and other news outlets to say, hey, what's going on here? And that was a story where we thought pretty deliberately about how to approach it and who we needed to talk to. Are you platforming a hate group by just showing a photo of their message hanging down from the from the highway? Is there an, a more thoughtful way to go about it? And I remember having the same conversation years ago about climate change coverage. Mm -hmm. If 99 percent yeah. of the science says we just had the hottest day in the history of recorded temperatures on Earth on July 4th, uh, mm -hmm. Do you need to get the 1% voice who says uh, this is a hoax? No, you don't. Absolutely. But that was controversial at the time, you know, uh, <laughs> when that was uh, when, when we first started saying, no, climate change does not deserve to be treated as a he said, she said issue. Yet there are a lot of places where that is the case. If, if you were running a public radio news op operation in West Virginia, 
you'd have a lot of people on your back when you write about climate change, when you uh, do stories about climate change. Right? Yes. I mean, we are we are lucky in a sense that we live in a community where people are more discerning. But you have to be willing, if you run a news organization, to say we're reporting the truth, even if it makes our listeners, our viewers, our readers uncomfortable. And that's a hard thing sometimes to convince owners in a private setting or, or managers in a public uh, or not-profit setting. That's sometimes a hard thing to convince them to accept. At, and here at, at WAMC, and as you say, you know, it's the it's the Northeast, and maybe there's a different view. We actually get the pressure from the climate activists. We don't get it from the deniers. We get the pressure from people saying, boy, your news coverage on the hottest day ever didn't say anything about microplastics in the ocean, and how come the weather <laughs> yeah, forecast doesn't mention the, the burning rainforest? So we, we're, we're actually getting it from the other side. I would also say there is a difference. I agree with what you're saying. It's important. But there's also a difference between debating both sides, whether it exists out of a scientific theory and the value of a group of human beings. So to say uh, gay people, there's another side to the idea that they deserve the same rights as any other American, that there's another side to that story, somehow is more heinous. It's immoral. Same with uh, that... that uh, the KKK has as legitimate a point of view as a black activist, Black Lives Matter, or that the Holocaust, there's two sides to the Holocaust story. That just seems to be a whole different level to me, and journalists have to take a stand. That's right. It isn't that we are uh, neutral vessels through which information right. is just needs to get to people. Uh, the goal is to give people truth, and if you allow, if you say that as a journalist you have no uh, standing to make moral judgments, uh, then you're uh, missing your opportunity to exercise responsibility. It's actually immoral, I think, to yeah, have that. I, I would say immoral, I do. I, mm -hmm. I always cringe when people go, oh, I want news like the old days, Walter Cronkite, you know, just straight down the middle. The most effective reporting Walter Cronkite ever did, he was an anchor, not a reporter, but that's a distinction only journalists make. His most effective reporting was saying the Vietnam War is unwinnable and we're losing and we have to get out. That was an opinion. That was not objective. It was not what the government was telling him. And we forget that. So now it's time. Even if we get criticism from the other side, we don't have to put their point of view. You have to listen to them. I, I, I totally agree with that. A journalist has to talk to everybody involved in a story, but you don't have to put equal weight on their words. Note, by the way, that Cronkite's moment of conscience came uh, after the public opinion had begun. It was just at the tipping point. Uh, yeah. So it was easier Safe. for him to be, mm -hmm. to make that uh, statement than, uh, I mean, with all due respect uh, to Walter Cronkite. He just gets a lot of credit for that, and I really yeah. hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. And speaking of which, <laughs> speaking of Walter Cronkite, who ended his newscast saying, uh, and that's, that's the, way the way it, it is. is. Yeah. Let's just talk for a second <laughs> about the way it is. Um, Wiener Zeitung. Wiener Zeitung is a newspaper in Vienna, Austria. It is one of the world's oldest. It has ended its print run after more than 300 years in circulation, citing financial pressures. I think this is quite interesting. Columbia Journalism Review reports that the paper's final edition featured an interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger, a famous Austrian, and the headline of this. Here was the headline. 320 years, 12 presidents, 10 emperors, two republics, one newspaper. It is going to continue to publish online and via a monthly print edition. So just a, a signal of the times, folks. Print is over. And if a 320-year-old newspaper uh, recognizes it, time for us to do that, folks.
And with that, we are out of time here on our little electronic free-for-all. Oh, no. This show should be 300 years. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're grateful to you folks for listening. Ian Pickett's here from WAMC, Rosemary Armeo, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gostina, and to you all for joining us this week. We'll see you next week once again on The Media Project. What a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.